0: Well, let's begin with prayer. Our Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together this day. And I thank you for these friends who've come to think through uh, the subject matter of this uh, class. I pray that you'll help the teacher to be clear, have a sense of energy and enthusiasm for for the topic. And Lord, I pray for um, our church that you'll continue to shine uh, your face of blessings on this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to you all this morning. I'm Glad to see you. I, I, um, I'm not really great at titles for classes, um, and uh, I, I, I joke with um. I don't know if you need to know Gordon Bowles or not. Gordon's a counselor in town. I think he's taught some classes here before, and and uh, every June, Gordon and I will team teach over at Covenant uh, Presbyterian Church uh, down on on Lakeshore, and I'll do something on the Bible and and Gordon will do something um, really interesting. <laughs> so, you know, so last summer, uh, no, it was the summer before Gordon's class. I, I, I my class was Hebrews. Uh, that, that was the title, Hebrews. And uh, Gordon was like sex in a sex-starved culture or something like that. I was like, oh, sheesh, I mean, I'm dead in the water. I can't, I can't. I can't beat that. Um, so I thought maybe it should be like, I told Doug Webster, Doug Webster who's teaching a class across the hall, he and I had lunch together on Friday, I said, I think I should probably have titled my class The Old Testament of the Trinity and Sex, or something like that. And I was like, have been in the crowd a little Anyway, but here you are, right? Here Here you are. Um, and, and I'll go ahead and just, just so I don't bury the lead, let you know that um, th- this this will be a little bit, um, th- this class will be thick. Okay. Um, we're going to try to, uh, plunge a little bit in here on uh, to get some conceptual clarity, to have some theological handles for how to come to terms with the Bible and the Bible's relationship to how we talk about God in first-order speech. Um, and whenever I say something that's not clear or um, is shrouded in linguistic mystery, uh, you know, please stop for the sake of clarity, and we'll we'll put the car in reverse and go back and make sure that we're. We're together. I also want to give you a sense of the scope of the class as I conceive of it now, fully aware that the course will not look like this when we're done. I, I know that. My, my students are on to me now as well at Beeson. They're like, we, we see your course schedule, but we know you're going to do whatever you want to do. Um, but this is how I conceive of it. Today, we're going to do some introductory matters and try again to give you some handles for what? tools do you need as we go through these seven weeks together and if you come in and out no big deal um, but these seven weeks together thinking about how the bible relates to how we talk about god all right um, so today we're going to kind of give some handles on that but next week and the following weeks so two weeks weeks two and three we're going to do the trinity and the pentateuch uh, which would be the first five books of moses thinking specifically about the interaction of word and spirit and creation um, God does not create without the presence of the Word and the Spirit and how that particular Trinitarian frame of reasoning uh, shapes our understanding of creation and gets us out of the gate in the Bible. Uh, so this is like Genesis 1. Um, we'll, we'll, also, we'll probably stay in Genesis, frankly, and maybe we'll press out of it a little bit. But I want to think with you some, something about the, um, the significance, theologically, of the tabernacle and how the tabernacle um shapes for us a certain kind of understanding of how Jesus makes himself present among people um and we'll also uh fill a little bit with the, the um Rublev's famous icon of the Trinity where Mo, where where Abraham was talking with the three visitors uh and uh, and so anyway we'll we'll do that for the next 2 weeks after this week then we'll spend 3 weeks in the prophets um uh, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel and the minor prophets and we'll just pick passages through there to kind of think through what's going on here as um, these particular words relate to the character of God. And then our last week together, we will do uh, the writings. Uh, you know, so it, we w- we'll just do probably Proverbs 8, to be honest with you. I don't, so you know what's coming. Uh, but we'll get into the last part of the, of the Hebrew canon as well. So that's my sense of what happens if we never get out of the Pentateuch and we're here... That you know, you know, just we'll just buckle our seatbelts and see what happens, and that, that'll be all right. Okay. So here's what I'd like to talk about today. I have uh, four topics. Well, let me rephrase that. Um, six topics that I'd like to just toss out, and uh, we'll bat around. And I'm happy for there to be some repartee back and forth. If you have things that you'd like to ask, uh, the first. Question that's going to again shape our approach to this is this question: um, What is the Old Testament? All right, what is it? That question is trying to put before us um, the significance of coming to terms with the character of the Bible. I mean, what what is the Old Testament as we receive it? You <laughs> taking one of these three Bibles, which I hope you have. We have them around our house, actually. And we felt kind of guilty about that because we have Bibles but until we realized there's another half ton. So, I mean, it's fine. Um, but we, we, we have these Bibles around our house. So, if you bring these and you think about the fact that here you have this particular section of the Bible, the Old Testament, um, which is in so many ways a kind of bizarre world. You know, there, there's a reason why people tend to sort of park in the New Testament and not going to the old testament there are there are dragons there in the old testament there there are there are difficulties and it doesn't take long for you to have some sort of coffee shop talk with someone about the bible and the problems of the old testament are going to surface uh, uh, n- namely you know genocide and um xenophobia and and uh, we heard that term today in our thing on the- like fear of strangers, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, so these, these particular terms that are used or, or at least these particular detractors that are brought up about the Old Testament tend to rise to the surface. But here's, here's the thesis I'll put before you and then I'll circle around it. The thesis is, there was never a time in the history of the church, and I mean by that, Jesus and the apostolic period as well, There was never a period in the history of the church where the church was not operating with a given body of Scripture that functioned authoritatively for them. If I could put that in shorthand terms, there was never a time when the church operated without a canon. Now that's kind of shocking to hear on some level. Because we tend to think about the New Testament itself and the way the New Testament came to be as freighted with problems. I mean, if if you've watched, you know, History Channel during Lent, okay, or a CNN documentary on Jesus and the Gospels, I mean, what do you have? We have someone like Elaine Pagels, and she's up at Princeton, and she's a talking head about Jesus, and she will say things you hear at ad nauseum uh, like... Well, there are multiple Christianities in the first two centuries. Um, eventually, you know, a certain kind of Christianity won out. And we have all these other Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Judas. There were all kinds of Christianities out there. This whole notion about orthodoxy, that's just an imposition on the winners of history. Why? Because the winners get to write history. That's the kind of notion that comes about. But if you get back into history, you realize there are all kinds of Christianities, and that has to do materially with the problem of the New Testament. So when does the New Testament come to be? When do we make a decision, or when do we recognize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and not the Gospel of Thomas, and not the Gospel of Mary Magdalene? I I should just go and lay my cards on the table. These uh, Gnostic gospels, Magdalene Thomas—any of you fiddled in them before? Watch the documentary on them. They—they they are goofville. I don't know what else to say. Weird stuff. The Gospel of Thomas. I think its last few verses says, "And women will be transformed into men, so that they can be received into the kingdom of God." Well, that's a very interesting thesis. <laughs> I, you know, that, let's talk about that, right? Um, so, I mean, the gospel, the, some of these Gnostic Gospels, I mean, if you've read one, you've read them all. Um, but it does raise the question, why are Gospels and not others? And how does Acts function? And then you get into the Pauline epistles. And, and you'll have debates basically arguing that the New Testament was either formed in the 2nd century or the 4th century with most scholars probably leaning toward the 4th century, over the 2nd century. Um, And so then you go, well, so the Bible wasn't stabilized? The New Testament wasn't a stable entity until the 4th century? And there's a conclusion that um, theologians and scholars and talking heads on CNN will make from this, and they will say, that means that there was a long time in the early church where they were operating without a Bible. Um, and, and what's behind this notion? What's behind this notion is a sensibility that whenever you have something authoritative, like a body of literature called the Bible or Scripture or Canon, whenever you have something authoritative like that that's laid on top of a community, what you end up doing is killing religious ingenuity. That's a very modern concept. Okay? If you put something authoritative on a group of people... Um, then all of a sudden you've you've lost the creative energy and enthusiasm of grassroots religious instincts. You find this kind of thing, by the way, in Old Testament scholarship too. Um, a fellow named Julius Wellhausen in the 19th century made the argument that the prophets actually come before the law in the history of Israel's religion. Now, that's extremely counterintuitive to you and to me, I imagine, right? Why? Because we have you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then we get into the prophets. So we tend to think about these things from a genetic standpoint. You have the, the, the law, the Torah, the books of Moses, and then the prophets. And here, Velhausen says, nope, it's actually the reverse. The prophets came first, and then that awful act of... Judaism after the exile occurs. And what's that, Mr. Velhausen? The sedimenting of Israel's religious life into a written system called the Torah. And what's girding this 19th century romantic thought? The prizing of the individual romantic genius? The prizing of someone unfettered by the constraints of any authority to dare to think and to reason and to feel all on their own, right? Um, that, that That's very much at play in the Old Testament. I think is at play uh, in New Testament scholarship as well, where you see, well, there's no real canon. And I'm saying to you, actually, the, the complete opposite. Despite the problems, that historically, about when the New Testament was settled in the form in which you have it in your ESV or NIV or whatever Bible you carry around, I would like to make the further claim, and that is, the Old Testament was fully operative for Jesus and the apostles and the early church from the beginning without question and without remainder. So even Jesus is not operating without a canon. Even the apostles are not operating without a governing, norming, authoritative body of Scripture. One of my favorite uh, uh, thinkers on this is a German named Hans von Kampenhausen, which is an awesome name. Hans von Kopenhousen, he he, he problematizes the issue this way. He says the problem in the early church in the apostolic period was not what do we do with our Old Testament now that we have Jesus. It was actually the reverse. What do we do with Jesus? How do we understand Jesus in light of the assumed and interior authoritative character of of the Hebrew Scriptures. How do we understand Jesus in that way? And we can just go through the new... Te- if you want proof texts, I'll mean, I give you a proof text ad nauseum on this, right? Here's Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and, he's, and uh, Cleopas and the unnamed disciples don't recognize who He is. They can't see Him. Jesus sits down, and what does He do? He has a Bible study and breaks bread with them. The study of the Bible and the Eucharist, that's what's going on in Luke 24. I mean, it's uh, it's, it's the sacrament. It's the teaching of the Word meant to come together. And there Jesus is. And what's He doing? He's giving to them an explanation of His own ministry, His life and death, on the basis of the law and the prophets. And then He he breaks the bread and He's gone. Gone. And uh, what happens at the end of that same chapter? Well, He comes back to those self-same disciples in a room. And what does Jesus do? Starts to speak just sort of, you know, um, extemporaneously about Himself. No. Jesus talks to them on the basis of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And here's Jesus Himself saying, by the way... That guy, Hans von Kampenhausen, This is—he didn't say this, but, but that, that guy, that von Kampenhausen, that 20th century thinker, who says that the problem was what to do with me in light of the Bible. I'm symbolizing that for you. I'm embodying that for you right now, because I want you to think about me in light of the framework of the Old Testament. No Old Testament, no substantial understanding of Jesus, and Jesus is saying that. Romans chapter 15 says that which was written in former days is now written for your instruction. There's an immediate presence of the Old Testament to the religious life and thinking of that first century Christian church in Rome. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, right? Here's Paul saying, I handed over to you that which was I, I received. Well, what did you receive, Paul? I received the Gospel. Well, what's the Gospel? That Jesus died. He lived, He died, and He rose again. What? According to the Scriptures. And for Paul, the Scriptures are clearly identified with what? The Old Testament. So when we start raising questions about God and the Old Testament and the Trinity, we're going to have to lean against certain instincts and cultural norms that are really present in today's intellectual environment and have to sort of lean against those with, a, with some handles that come from the ways in which the Bible itself thinks about itself. And that's very different than CNN and, and the History Channel. Right? Okay, let me read to you. A really long quote quote, where I could lose you. (laughs) Um, I hate people reading me quotes, but here we go. Um, This is from uh, my dear friend Herman Bavinck. He's dead. Um, This is what he says about the Bible, and I want to parse some of this out for you. He says Scripture, accordingly, does not stand by itself. So that's the question that we're raising: What is the Old Testament? He says, the Bible doesn't stand all on its own. It may not be construed deistically. Let's parse this out. What does that mean, it cannot be construed deistically? It cannot be construed in a way that you would find deistic thought in this early 17th and 18th century when it came to God and His relationship to the world. What's deism? Well, God creates the world by the power of His Word. He sets it on a course of natural law and then releases the world to do its thing as he withdraws himself from the mechanisms of the natural order that God has established. And every once in a while he might hop in, right, miraculously, but by and large, You know, the sun's going to come up and the moon's going to come out and the tides are going to come in and out and the seasons are going to change because God established it that way way back in time when He created the world. And now He just kind of sits back and and, and He watches the world go. That's deism, which is wrong, right? Um, And here's Habavik saying we can't view the Bible that way. We can't view the Bible as something where God was really involved when Moses was pinning the Pentateuch. He was really involved when David wrote those Psalms, or the sons of Korah, or Isaiah, or his followers who shaped his words together, or Micah, or, and the list could go on and on, John, Paul, uh, the author of the Hebrews, right? He's saying, it's not just what happened there, where he was involved in that, and then he sets the boat of the Bible off into the, onto the ocean. Now, go. We, We can't view the Bible deistically that way. It is rooted in a centuries-long history and is the fruit of God's revelation among the people of Israel and in Christ. Still, it is not a book of times long past which only links us with persons and events of the past. Holy Scripture is not an arid or dry story. It's not just an ancient chronicle. It's not just the Enuma Elish or the Code of Hammurabi. It's not just that. But it's the ever living, and this is, if we're gonna have a t-shirt for our class, we'll put this quote in it, alright? We won't do that. But this is the quote. It is the ever living, eternally youthful word. You hear that? We tend to think about the Old Testament's problem as it being ancient, dusty, uh, sandals and chariots, spears and bows and arrows, right? And here's Bobbing saying, the problem with the Bible is not that it's ancient. It's eternally youthful. God, now and always, issues it to His people. It's the eternally ongoing speech of God to us. It does not just serve to give us historical information. It does not even have the intent to furnish us a historical knowledge by the standard of reliability demanded in other realms of knowledge. Now, if you're listening out closer, close, you go, well, hold on, I'm not sure I like that. But what's Bavink saying? Bavink's saying, if you bring... A early 20th century or modern notion of history telling to the Bible and say, I want you to do history just like William Shire does World War Two, Or just like Shelby Foote does the narrative of the Civil War. Because I expect the Bible to give me that kind of detailed socio political, geopolitical, religious historical knowledge. So that I can put together all of the historical causes that lead to particular effects to understand history in that way. If you think the Bible is going to provide you that kind of information, you will be frustrated, really frustrated. Matter of fact, one of my favorite stories about this to illustrate it—did I say I had five points? It's okay, it's all right. <laughs> so, we might not. It's okay. Um, one of my favorite points to illustrate this is uh, King Josiah. Now, Josiah, good king or bad king? Thumbs up king, right? So he's good king. Matter of fact, not just a good king, a messianic king. A, a central figure. You know, you can tell in the in the book of Samuel and Kings when the narrator really wants to emphasize something because the narrator will slow down. You'll feel like, a, and this king died and then he had a son and he did evil in the sight of the Lord and da-da-da-da, and then he died and then he died and you have that. Then all of a sudden, you get this elongation. Things slow down in the plot. And in the slowing down of the plot, that's the narrator saying, hey, by the way, this is important. Josiah gets a couple chapters in Kings. That's a lot by the standard of the Chronicles of the Kings. So here's Josiah. He brings religious reform. He's a significant figure. He's a messianic figure. He brings Torah back to the center of Israel's worshiping life. And then here's one verse in the Bible. And Josiah was up at Megiddo and fell at the hands of Pharaoh Necho II. Next verse. Bah, 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 bah. And you're like, well, hold on here. I mean, I've got so many questions on top of questions. Number one, why in the world was Josiah the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, up in the northeast part of Israel at Megiddo? Why was he up there? And what had happened in the geopolitical world that brought Pharaoh Necho II and Josiah into conflict one with another in this... Ending of the Neo Assyrian period. I mean, there's all kinds of questions, and by the way, there are answers to those questions to be found. Just not here in the Bible. This is the Bible, and this is what Babek is saying. The Bible is just not interested in giving you, um, coffee talk information that you might want. Generalized information. It's got a purpose behind its history telling. Well, I have more things I want to say in the Bible. I'm going to go to the last quote here. This is what he says. In it that is the Bible God daily comes to his people. In it he speaks to his people, not from afar, but from nearby. Get that? It's not far away, locked back in ancient Israel, you know, choking down the dust of the ancient Near Eastern world. No, he's near. And the Bible is the living voice of God. The divine inspiration accordingly is a permanent attribute of Holy Scripture. It was not only God breathed at the time that it was written, it is God breathing. All right. That's a very different concept of the Bible that views this, especially the Old Testament, no longer as an inert shard, as a pot, you know, located in the ancient Near Eastern world, or a scroll in some cave in Qumran. It's, it's more than that. It's a commitment to understanding that this is dynamic. It's not static. It's a, it's the very instrument by which God communicates His own life-giving and saving word to His people. When we want to hear God speak, He does that uniquely and specifically through the creative power of His word, which is alive and young and before us. I mean, think about it this morning. All right, we had two gospel readings read. And how did we respond liturgically together? This was the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, this is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I mean, even in our liturgical, embodied actions in worship, we're saying something about what we view the Bible, the Old Testament specifically to our class, what it is. This is the Word of the Lord. It's a dynamic understanding of the character of the Bible as being immediately present as the living Word of God among His people. Okay? Uh... Second point. What's the relationship between faith and reason? What's the relationship between faith and reason? Well, this is a massive topic, right? I'm just going to give you the line from St. Augustine, and we'll move on. All right? Here's, here's how St. Augustine in the 5th century made a distinction between reason and faith. Here's reason. Reason... Is trying to cross the God-world divide through human initiation or projections. I say that again. Trying to cross the God-world divide through human initiation or projections. Now, this is a hot topic. Some of you might even have a dog in the fight, so feel free to press back on this in the Q and A, which we won't have. Um, <laughs> <coughs> uh, but feel free to press back whenever. Um, but the, 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 the faith, reason, relationship is one that has separated theological traditions. How do the two interrelate? Or, or maybe these are terms you're more familiar with, nature and grace. How do nature and grace uh, relate to one another? I just want us to make a very simple, straightforward claim. And that is, the distinction I'm making between reason and faith is not between being um, intellectually or rationally ordered in our thinking about God. I'm not talking about an, an approach to Christian faith or theology that leads with the gut only. You know, I sort of feel my way through this thing. Um, we're talking about a robust intellectual and, 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 and um, conceptual engagement with trying to order rightly our thinking about God. God wants us to do that. And, and there are a lot of Christians out there that have, have bought in to this dualist understanding of our person as Christians. I want, I want to feel deeply for Jesus. That's great. Or I'm in this theological tradition. I want to think hard for Jesus. And you kind of meet people who are on those that spectrum. I'm I, I'm, a, I'm a feeler. I'm a thinker. I think about doctrine. I don't really. That's kind of dry and arid. I just want to sort of feel my way with Jesus, you know, on life's road. And I, I just would want to sort of posit to you that that's a that's what we would call the horns of a false dilemma, right? That, that, that's, that's a false choice. Uh, that's bifurcated thinking. It's brittle thinking. Because we can think deeply and hard for Jesus. And, the, and to my mind, the best thinkers in the Western intellectual tradition are those who are Christian theologians that have thought long and hard about their faith. I'm going through a little bit of an Aquinas phase. I don't know why. Um, but I'm trying to think a lot about Aquinas and analogy and language. And here's this monk. Have you ever read anything by Aquinas? You, you haven't understood it i't I, mean, I, I read these statements I go well, that's, that that's what he means, and then I think about it, and I go, well, hold on, that can't be what he means. What does he mean i don 't know, and really? admired, it, it, these simple statements require second, third, fourth passes. For a man who felt deeply about Jesus. You know the story about Augustine, I mean, Aquinas, right? And this is not fabricated. This is, this is true. He had some kind of, he was three to six months away from finishing the Summa Theologicae. He was going to finish. The, I mean, one of the greatest achievements in the theological tradition, he was about to finish. He has some kind of beatific vision, and he says, I'm done. I will write no more. Because what I've seen makes my work pale in comparison with, with what I've actually just experienced. There's a man who felt deeply about... So the whole notion about feeling deeply or thinking deep deeply is a false di- false dichotomy. Okay, But what is faith? Faith is the ascent to the downward movement of divine self-communication. So reason is the Tower of Babel. Reason is building up, trying to cross the God-world divide, the creator-creature divide by our own the, by the instrument of our own creative and intellectual faculties stripped of any preconceived notions but what's faith faith is an ascent faith is a submission to the to the reality that we can never build with our, with our own the categories of our own mind we can never build to a knowledge of god that is in concert with who he actually is it will be a false god it will be an idol It'll be a God of our own projection. We have to submit to the fact that God is going to tell us what He wants us to think about Him. And that's, again, the priority and the primacy of the Bible to ordering our thinking about God. Paul McGlasson says, "...the one source for the church's doctrine of the Trinity is Holy Scripture." That's the one source. So, again, not making a claim about not thinking hard for Jesus... We're talking about the ordering of the ways in which we go about thinking, and that's going to be required for a class like this, because we're going to be talking about the triune nature of God. I mean, this is—I mean, I've got kids who smell a rat when we start talking about the Trinity, All right? I mean, they just know you're—is you're, Jesus God or man or not? And I was like, well, he's both, fully at the same time. He can't be that. Well, you know, so I mean, this is this, this is around my dinner table, right? Sort of thinking about these matters as it relates to the fundamental character of our belief that God is triune. If you go and you look at, I love this, by the way, the little ch- the chair or whatever it is that sits out right outside the chancel in that little passageway there. There's a chair there with a cover on it, and you can see that this, this is a classic icon that's in, embroidered in this in the um, uh, 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 the cushion. And what is it? Well, it's um, pater, filius, spiritus. Right? The father, the son, the spirit. And then in the middle is deus. right. And what goes around that connects pater, filius, spiritus. Here's the round part. Non est, non est, non est. The father is not the son. The son is not the spirit. The spirit is not the father. And then there's a line that comes in from the three members of the Trinity, to Deus in the middle, and there you have what? Est. Is. For the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And if you think that you build with the natural categories of your mind to that understand, orthodox understanding of the character of God, then I, mean, I think you realize we're going to have to pull the screen back on the Wizard of Oz and realize that's not the case. We need God to descend to us in our speaking about Him. I'll, I'll, I'll stop here I what I want to say but we'll do it next week um, Immanuel Kant rises in the 18th century very seminal thinker and figure of uh, enlightenment thought and Immanuel Kant said something about the way in which we know and understand that to this day I agree with now I'd want to nuance and talk about it but I agree with him fundamentally and that is there's a distinction between the ways in which we know the phenomenal world around us the fact that I see coffee here and engage him Um, There's a chair here and there's a tree outside. This is my understanding of reality that's based on the phenomenal world of my experience. But the world of true being, the world of treeness, the world of God, that world, what he calls the noumenal world, we can never build from the phenomenal world to the noumenal world. Now, unfortunately for Kant, that was the end of the conversation. We are stuck here in this world with the categories of our mind as we perceive reality, never having any ability to get to the thing itself. But what's the Christian tradition's answer to that? Well, Kant, you're actually right. We can't build just from our experience to a proper understanding of God. We can't. So what's the antidote to that? God comes down. See that's the Christian confession about the ordering of faith and reason. God comes down to us. He speaks to us. He reveals Himself. He speaks in human language, so that humans can understand, even if not fully, but responsibly and sufficiently, who God is and what we what God wants us to understand about His person and His work. Okay. Now, uh, there's other things I want to talk about today. Was Moses trinitarian? The relationship between language and God, but but we'll we'll talk about some of that next week. Let's take some Q and A. Do we have time? Yeah, we, we can. Two questions, if you want to bat it around. It's a bit like a uh, mouth to a fire hydrant. Sorry about that. Um, but anything you want to bat around? Anything you're upset about? Yeah. I'm talking to a brave doctor friend
1: of mine. he's not Christian.
0: He said Jews don't believe in heaven. How do you argue with that? He said Jews don't believe in heaven? Well, that's a weird statement. I don't know what to say about that. I mean, I, I do know that within, as my understanding of Judaism is, that there's there's some differentiation between the various streams about the, the relationship between the body and immortality. Um,. But I do, but I do think there's some sort of conception of immortality within Orthodox Judaism that recognizes that there is a life beyond the physical realm. Whether or not they call that heaven or not, I don't know. But I think the, the larger point that you're raising is, is one that's germane to what we're talking about, and that is, well, how do we know? See, this is the question that we're all wanting to ask. How, how do we know? And how can we know in any kind of way that's confident? Um, That's confident not in our ability to know, but in the fact that our knowledge rests on something that's indubitable, that's trustworthy. And that's where the conception of this distinction between reason and faith becomes most appropriate. We only can make those kind of claims on the basis of faith. These are faith claims. doesn't mean they're irrational. It doesn't mean they don't make sense within the system itself. But we make these claims on the basis of faith, the fact that God has spoken, and we're ordering our knowledge according, according to that. And admittedly, there's an inherently circular character to that kind of claim. That someone might call you out on that. And my answer to that is, well, I sleep fine. And I, you know, there's a point where the confliction of worldviews won't allow us to share the same kind of language to be able to talk to one another clearly. And, I, and I'm more comfortable now being able to lay those cards out on the table but in, in the face of any feigned approach to neutrality. Let's, I'm going to set aside my beliefs, you set aside your beliefs, let's come to the table of neutrality and just see whose evidence beats the other person's evidence. I, I just don't even think that's possible um, for anyone, not just a Christian. I don't think anyone can come to anything without a lot of intellectual and, and baggage, social baggage, cultural baggage. I just don't think it's possible. But I would love to talk to him. I hear what it was fascinating. No oh, heaven, well.
1: Not so much a question, but a, a bit of an observation. When we talk about the scriptures, the Holy, the Bible, and the questions about how did it get here? Well, the Old Testament was pretty much accepted by the world Jew, Judaism of the, the Jews of the world almost in its entirety up until well up to the birth of Jesus. The the gospel of what we call the New Testament stood the test of time amongst those who are believers in Christ by virtue of the fact that without the modern communication that we enjoy today, instantaneous email, etc., etc., the great body of those who are believers accepted the body that we call the New Testament as being the true and proper word of God without yeah. Without all of the, the modern baggage we call upon to say, well, the, the winners wrote the, wrote the Bible. Well, they didn't. The people that were of a body of knowledge, without the modern communication that we have, all accepted as a matter of faith that what they were reading was indeed the true word of God. We could, And you look at when you debate the, the Trinity, if you read laboriously infrequently the Athanasian creed <laughs> you get a sense of what the people struggled with yeah. and how it did get resolved in the early in the early church yeah. but it was not it was not an imposition so much as it was an acceptance yeah. of hey wait a minute this is the way it was yeah
0: yeah yeah That's, there's a lot there thank you coffee yeah okay Kristen and if you need to go get kids you know feel free to run I, okay. I gotta,
1: yes ma'am Does that through His Son of Jesus Christ. Then the enterprise of coming to Scripture and interpreting Scripture is a Trinitarian
0: enterprise. That we need God to help us to yeah. understand yeah. God. So it's like a not circular, but yeah, um, well, it's, it's a coherent system that that that's rationally ordered unto itself. The, the basic principles of thought are rationally ordered unto itself. And I think that's very important, and that. That, again, is, is why I'm raising these questions on the front end. Because our understanding of these matters shapes our interpretation of the Bible. We don't, we don't have that kind of neutral approach to reading. It, it shapes us. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, I of people who are non
1: this reason is a real
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: The way the gap is bridged is through the Holy Spirit. That's right? right. I mean, y- you can't...
0: You, and it's something that's very difficult to explain, right? Or to yeah. articulate to yeah. that person who yeah. doesn't, isn't a
1: Christian. Yeah, right? yeah. how? Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, what do you mean you have faith yeah. in this? Yeah. How did you get there? And you get back yeah. to this intellectual... Yeah, yeah no, no, it's... Show exactly, no.
0: It thing, and, and, the only thing you've got in heart, yeah. really, is this Holy yeah. Spirit, which they have no clue what you're talking about. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what, right. What the heck is that? Yeah, No, it's, it's, And it's crazy, Bill. I mean, I told my students at Beeson that there's an infinite gap between proof and persuasion. And that's a gap that's only filled by the promised presence of the Holy Spirit. Because yeah. um, you can give all the proof you want to. And I think we should, as we can and are able. But not, not to necessarily think that that proof will be self-interpreting. Um, and of itself, generative of faith. No, it demands a divine operation for that to be able to be seen. Yeah. Yeah. I will do this quickly, Charles, and then yes, sir. If, if faith
1: is the belief in things unseen, as the Bible says it is, and
0: I'm not saying this to shut down the faith versus reason yeah. questions, but it almost does for me. You know, people tell me that light has the properties of waves and of particles. Yeah, it's wild, I've never seen it? a photon. I've never seen light. I accept that they exist and that they operate that way. Right. You know, I'm supposed to be made up of protons and neutrons and electrons and a lot of other tinier or so particles. I've never seen any of those. Yeah. But I believe that that's a plausible explanation for how, what, what I'm yeah. physically comprised of. You know, how is that a problem? I mean, yeah. it's, it yeah. seems to me like the secular world yeah. has, to, has to make, yeah. even, in some ways, even larger leaps of faith in terms of uh, believing things unseen. Yeah, I, mean, we? Yeah. Yeah. I will just say... I think, and this relates to your your comment as well, I believe that's a legitimate cultural point of contact in our current moment is is with the realm of physics. I really do. I I think a new book just out, Frank Wilczek, um, a beautiful question. Nobel Prize winning physicist teaches at MIT, and he's like, when you look at the subatomic realities in in the realm of physics, if there is a creator, he must be an artist. He's got to be an artist. Um, and then he goes through it. Why? Because on the subatomic realities, there's something going on that can't be explained by mere logical syllogisms. A, then B, which must lead to C. Because it goes A, B, D, E, F, G, B. You're like, well, I don't know what that means. You know, it's, and I think you're right. I mean, I think there's something that's going on on that level that allows for us to at least have some kind of language to say, hey, um, there's more here than our mere words and our mere instincts um, have to offer about understanding the world. And in the realm of physics, I think is, and again, I speak as an amateur, but as I think a point of contact there. Yes, sir. Final word. I don't, I don't, I mean, but the, um, I have my reservations about Pascal. Again, and, and again, this, but, but I appreciate that whole, that whole sort of renaissance of Augustinian thought among those French Catholics at that time, I think it's very important. Um, Jansenists, I think, were the, the technical term of the group. But I, um, but I have my reservations about the ways in which Pascal ordered knowledge and faith to one another. I'll just say that out loud. But I think there's a lot there to be, and maybe that's my, my lack of understanding of Pascal, but, but the classic Pascalian wager makes me sweat a little bit. Just, you know, uh, it just makes me sweat a little bit. No, but again, that's my own theological instincts. But I think there's a lot to be, to be thought through with Pascal. Okay. Yeah.
1: That we are, first of all, thankful that we have heard the call to come unto me right. like a child without any explanation. Yeah. Come like a child.
0: That's how we... That's right. Have that's right. That's right. And that demands that demands humility, intellectual humility. That's right. It's like bad. we, that's, yeah, I think it's a good point, Stuart. You, you want to? A simple question: If we're going to think, read, study a little bit before
1: we come back next week, what might we look at? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's rather
0: it.
1: be what I can is fruit and leaf.
0: He's okay. not used to people asking <laughs> Yeah, I know. i Someone else. Let me think about that. And I'll try to bring maybe something in next week. Do you all want stuff like that? I always think that's a pain. a Okay. Let me think about that. Yeah, Stay on me.
1: Go to and read about his and
0: oh. Don't... Um, Okay. I will think about I'll take that as a challenge for the week. I'll take that as a challenge. Yeah. I got homework too now. Thanks, Stuart. Appreciate it.